You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Uh, We're here for our Byzantine lectionary reflection, our Bible study on the biblical text, which are given to us for this coming Sunday, or the Sunday before the exaltation of the Holy Cross. So let's jump right in here to our gospel text in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. You'll see as soon as we get in here that this really is the Sunday before the exaltation of the Holy Cross, because the texts which are given to us are because of that the great feast day, which is coming. So so let's jump in here. Chapter 3, verse 13. You got, uh, everyone should get their Bibles out. Come on, Bible study down in San Diego. Guys, okay. Father Sebastian, is that a real Bible you got there? Okay. All right. Chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. I'm going to take a look here. The Lord said, no one has gone up into heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that those who believe in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that those who believe in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. For God did not send his Son into the world in order to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Okay, we're going to take a look at this text now as we always do in its context. But of, of course here, there's two, we have two contexts to take a look at. And so I'm gonna just stop for a moment. We're gonna pause for our, our Bible studiers out there. And I want you guys to write down, if I'm gonna say there's two areas of context we really wanna look at, what are those two areas? So hit pause, make sure you write those down. And here we go. Okay, Father Sebastian, our first context that we wanna look at is obviously John itself. So where does this text fit in? It's really important, especially as we go into the epistle, that we get this context, because this is one of those parachute texts that we walk in like, oh, that's nice. Okay, Jesus is, Jesus isn't come to be mean, he's come to give life. And we like that. <laughs> what's, the, what's really going on? Here? What's the, why is Jesus saying this right now? And who's he talking to? All right, so yeah, this is a good example of you know a great, a beautiful text from John. John has so many texts like this that you could just take out and read and say, "Wow, that's beautiful." Yeah. But you got to put it in the context to really understand the the all uh, you know the the depth of what he's saying here. So he's talking about salvation and right, excising it out of the of the section. Someone could use it for all sorts of things as. <coughs> Though I don't have a TV, I, I know people like to uh, put verse 16 on a big sign at football games and things like that and hold it up and bumper stickers and whatever. But once you put it back, in, and it is a beautiful verse, verse 16 is beautiful. But when you put it back in its context, 
it suddenly says something very different, or at least says in a different way than it's often presented. Any commentary written by a biblical scholar on John chapter 3 will tell you that this is about baptism. Mm-hmm. Sorry and, about that. Uh, it was my cell phone that was on. Sorry, guys. Bad example to all of you. Turn off your cell phone and throw it out. <laughs> especially when you come into church on Sunday. That's so, right. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, if you look at this context, it begins by Nicodemus, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. He, he comes from the darkness to the light. Jesus in John's gospel is the light of the world. We heard it in the prologue. Jesus is going to say it later. At the end of this section, and it, this is important to see the framing device so that we know we're talking about one unit here. It begins by, uh, this is in chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are the teacher come from God. So that he's coming to the light, coming to Jesus. See, and all serious commentaries are going to point this out. And then it concludes with these last lines. It says, in chapter 3, verse, oh, we could go to verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and men love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Verse 21, but he, like Nicodemus, he who does what is true and comes to the light, uh, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrong. In God. So Nicodemus, by the end of the story, we're going to see at the end of the gospel, he's going to be with Jesus, right? He's going to be at the tomb. He's going to be burying Jesus. So he's a, a good character in the story. And so what's important for us, putting Nicodemus aside for a second, is this theme that has tied the whole thing together. We're talking about one unit, one pericope, as the scholars will divide these things. The chapter divisions don't always end up where they necessarily should be. They were put in by someone in the 12th century. But the this is a, a unit here. And the unit goes on beyond this as well. Even the paragraph divisions aren't always in the best spot. But the, the theme of baptism runs through the whole section. Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can I enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you must be born again. People often think, well, what does that mean? Well, then Jesus explains it to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born from above of water and the spirit. All the fathers of the church, all serious scholars have always read that as a reference, born again, that is being born again from above by water and the spirit is a reference to baptism into the kingdom of God, a new birth, a new creation that we're going to be talking about at the end of our, our discussion today. And then it concludes with this language here in verse 22, the very next line at the, at the end of this pericope in verse 22 after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea, and then there remained with them and baptized. That, that's, what does that have to do with anything? Right? All of a sudden, this reference to baptism comes out of nowhere, unless you realize the whole section was about baptism. Mm-hmm. Now, as John will explain to us in chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus wasn't baptizing. His disciples were baptizing only at this point. This was a continuation of the baptism of John. This was not a, a sacramental baptism yet. That will come after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is an important theme today, of course. So just to conclude that context is that Jesus is talking about baptism, entering the kingdom of God through being born again by water and the spirit. And he concludes in the second half by talking about his coming death and resurrection. 
And uh, here talking about that reference to Moses and the servant, he will, the son of man will be lifted up on the cross. Obvious reference to his coming crucifixion, lifted up and he will then also save and give life to all of those who are in need of it, to those who are perishing, as he concludes with at the end there. You know, there's this, this text is, uh, well, it's one of my favorites, and it's so rich. We could spend a lot of time just here in this, uh, this conversation with Nicodemus, but I do think it's important for us um, just to spend one more minute. I want to just add to your insights just a couple of things that are important for our people participating to know. And by the way, it's always good to have a pen. You oftentimes see me grab a highlighter in the middle of our, our Bible study. I'm learning as we go also. Father Sebastian, did you cross out some of your Bible? You don't like it? There's no, not... I have lines, lines and things like that. Oh my, it looks like you don't like that paragraph. <laughs> uh, no, it's good to have your pen and pen. In fact, I was just writing a note myself here in the, in the, uh, uh, next to one of the verses. But, um, but, but first of all, to understand a little bit of the context here, that, he, that in chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees. If you want to make a little note there, Luke chapter 7, verse 30, Luke chapter 7, verse 30, where it says that the Pharisees refused to be baptized. And this is the fundamental problem. And Nicodemus is coming to him. He says, we know who you are. And Jesus says, look, you, know, you, you, can't, you don't know who I am because you refuse the baptism of John. So you're not, it's important because it, everything Jesus is going to say is going to be, he's going to be talking through the prism of baptism. I like that, that concept because it gives us this idea that, that we see, we can see the faith in a few different ways as Nicodemus and the Pharisees were standing on the edge of the Jordan from the outside, watching it happen, but not ever participating, not getting in and seeing it from the inside. But here Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you go through the waters of holy baptism, being born anothen or being born from above. And then, he, like you said, he goes on to explain that in this parallelism where he, where he comes a second time and says, what does it mean to be born again or be born from above? It means to be born of water and the spirit. And of course, in the Gospel of John, water and spirit is Jesus just got baptized. So we've got a, a whole context here of baptism, which is going to help us understand what Jesus is about to say. There's, there's this other aspect now of being born on a then or being born from above where Nicodemus says, he says, he says, we, we know who you are. And in the gospel of John, there's this, all this conversation about where Jesus has come from. And of course, he's going to tell him he's come from above. He's come from above. But of course, Nicodemus can't see that. Uh, the Pharisees cannot see that. They cannot know that. They cannot uh, begin to participate in that being born from above apart from baptism and seeing properly what's about to take place. Of course, the Pharisees are going to start to plot now Jesus's own death in the gospel of John and the other gospels, which is going to bridge us to this whole Old Testament image that Jesus is using. He, he's in this conversation with Nicodemus. It's a kind of almost a combative conversation. And then knowing full well what the Pharisees are going to do to him, they're going to crucify him. So now Jesus calls forward this image from the Old Testament, which is this image of the serpent on the, on the pole, which is our second context. But before we jump there, before we look there, I hope that was the second context you guys wrote down. Father, you mentioned, you mentioned resurrection, and it's, it's so important for us to go back and to always have these 
themes right there in front of us, almost like that prism of baptism, is that prim is, prim, prism of resurrection. Of course, the two combined. We have, all, we have everything come together now with death, with, bap, with baptism, with new life, with resurrection. All of this comes together in this, this text we're looking at. Where do you see in this text Jesus is talking about, where do you see resurrection that you mentioned in there? Because you're right, it is important. I'm glad you asked that. You know, this is, this is, I'm glad you pointed out too what you were talking about earlier about how it's all through the prism of baptism. This is what's missing today. If, if someone comes to you talking about salvation, talking about the gospel, the good news, and they're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus and baptism, then they're not preaching the apostolic gospel. All we have to do is look at every apostolic preaching and acts and we see central to it is resurrection and then at the end baptism right this is what jesus did and now this is what you can do how you can participate in that and and i i think it's such a before we jump into this to answer this it's important to just to turn for one second over to acts to point this out we've talked about this in other lectures before but in acts is a great example of this in Acts chapter uh, 8, Acts chapter 8, Philip gets into the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53, and he asked him to explain the text to him. And it says this, this is Acts chapter 8, verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, pray, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then verse 35 and this is a great spot for our, our listeners to uh, do a pause as well in a second here. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news of Jesus. And this is a good spot to hit pause and write down a list of, or a little description of what that, what was he saying? What was the content? I've done this in many seminary courses and things like that. Asked everyone to stop. What do you think? was he was talking about what did he say to him in those next five ten minutes and invariably because people are influenced by modern theology modern uh often protestant anti-sacramental theology they'll never mention the resurrection of jesus and they'll never mention baptism or the eucharist mm -hmm. it's devoid of that it's zwinglian mm -hmm. theology but if you look at the very next line, it says, and as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, here is water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? That is a total disjunct right there. That next line, unless you're thinking through the baptismal prism, unless you're thinking of baptism and the resurrection of Jesus, that's what the good news is. Then that next line doesn't make any sense at all. Anyway, having said that, let's go back to the text here in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, this is verse 16 and 17. The whole thing says this, but um, in verse 16, he says, for, actually verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, how does he give eternal life? The next line, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, it says it again. 
Verse 17, for God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved from him. So when we're talking about giving eternal life and being saved through Jesus, we're being saved through his death and resurrection, as St. Paul says in Romans. And we're going to see this later on as we talk about this. Paul says, through baptism, we have been buried with him. We have died with him. We've been buried with him. And we have been raised with him to newness of life. And obviously, St. Paul's talking about there, about being saved, right? How, how salvation happens. And for St. Paul, that happens through the baptismal font. Death, burial, and resurrection in now to the kingdom of God, into the life of Jesus, being born again as a new creation. Yeah, as I've said before many times, no one's going to rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ. Uh, with that in mind... Let's look at this image that Jesus gives us in the Old Testament. It's a rich image. It's one of these ones that I think it's a, it's a reminder to our Bible study students here that a good, good Bible study is, is as much good habits as it is knowing the answer or having the insight. If you have the habit, a lot of times the habit itself will lead you to a good interpretation, to an orthodox interpretation. If you have a bad habit, a lot of times your that bad habit leads you to a heretical interpretation. Uh, the good habit here is slow down, read, for, and, and, and mine the text for the image that's being given to you, and then go and get it and refresh yourself in it. Because Jesus, when he says this about the serpent being lifted up, most of us say, yeah, yeah, okay, I kind of, kind of remember that. It was this thing in the Old Testament about the serpent, and they lift Moses. I know who that guy is. All right, and then Jesus can be lifted up on the cross. Right. He's going to give us life. Yeah, and that's kind of where we end up. This image is extremely rich. There's a whole background story in the book of Numbers about this text, and unless you know it, and you've actually done a Bible study on that one, you can't really properly understand what Jesus is trying to say here. So let's go back and do that right now. Father, take us, how take could us away have here. Time, how could someone have the time to do a Bible study in the Gospel of John and on some book in the Old Testament in this modern day and age? Well, they'd have time if you wouldn't, your comments wouldn't be so long. In our, <laughs> no, <I'm> just totally. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what your answer is. Throw out the cell phone. If we throw out the cell phone and we turn off the television, when's the last time I was saying decent on the television? Seriously. Decent. Something decent. Yeah. What's the context of this thing with Moses? Where's where that in the, in the Bible? Father? All right. So this is in Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. In, um, in, we know about the 40-year wandering. Most people are aware that Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't because they didn't have GPS or they didn't have their cell phones. It was because... They had refused to enter in after the exodus, the plagues, the cross in the Red Sea, giving them the tablets, the building of the tabernacle, the glory cloud. They immediately head from Sinai to the promised land. And as soon as they get to the edge, they get scared and they don't want to go in. In fact, they accuse God of trying to lead them in so that their little ones and their wives would become prey for the Philistines and the Canaanites. And so God says, fine, you don't want to go in? You're going to die in this wilderness, just like you've said. And so he leads them to the wilderness in basically a circle in the, in the northern Sinai Peninsula, just south of the Dead Sea. It's out, there's nothing out there. And for 
40 years, they basically just keep going in circle. They keep camp, they camp, they camp, they camp, they camp. And God just leads them in a circle until they're all dead. And then the last one's still alive at the very end are Moses, Joshua, Caleb, and all the children that they said were going to become prey for the Philistines are now adults. And all the adults who refused to go on, aside from Moses, Joshua, Caleb, are all dead. And so now they go, they wrap around the northern side of the Dead Sea, and they, with Joshua, cross in. Of course, Moses stays on the other side and is taken up into heaven. But Joshua leads them across the Jordan. We all know that story. But while they're out there wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, of course, they're still complaining. And this is one of those examples. They're complaining about everything. And so God sends in uh, fiery serpents. Now, what were these? These aren't serpents. They're snakes that are on fire. They're some sort of venomous snake. In the, and there's lots of them out there. Almost every snake out there is venomous. Some have suggested maybe the asp. Whatever it was, some sort of a snake that they called fiery, probably because maybe, you know, before the guy died, he got very hot with fever, or maybe it was a burning sensation when they bit, whatever the case. These snakes were biting them, and the people were dying in the camp, and then they cried out to Moses and to God, and God commands, this is in chapter 21, this is verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, chapter 21, verse 8, make a fiery serpent, so make an image out of bronze of one of these snakes, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit any man, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And so Jesus uses this as an example. Here these people are dying and God is going to save them. And the um, and Jesus will be saved, of course, by being lifted up on the cross. There's a lot more there. I think you have some comments on this. Yeah, I was going to encourage, let's go back just a little bit. I know it's we're short on time, and, and uh, uh, mostly because uh, I, I made my comments too long. But chapter 21, let's look at verse 4. Let's read from verse 4 down to verse 9, because I think it will be helpful when we're applying this to Jesus that we see this context of what's going on in the context of what you were saying earlier about Nicodemus and the Pharisees. It's only in there in John that in the context of his conversation with the Pharisees and with Nicodemus and baptism and the Eucharist that we can really understand what he's saying. Well, similarly here, a lot of times people look at the historical thing. Well, they lift up the serpent, and it looks like it's like Jesus got lifted up on the cross. But let's look at the context of why. If we go back to verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I love that one because, uh, for, first of all, one point is important, is that they now accused the one who has given them life of being the author of death. So they've made God out to be the evil one, to be the serpent who dealt death to mankind in the beginning. But then you've got the funny part, which is that they say, we have no water, we have no food, and we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> so they do have water and they do have food. In fact, God has provided, miraculously provided for water. 
multiple times and he's provided miraculously for food every single morning with manna, which becomes the reason I point this out about you were mentioning baptism and Eucharist that you, that here in this case, God has wanted to feed us from the very beginning. He fed us in, in, in paradise. He fed us in the desert and he feeds us now in the church. But the question is, do we, do we recognize that and do we value it? Or do we oftentimes loathe this worthless food in the sense that I don't really need to go to church. I'll receive communion from an oak tree, you know, whatever it is I want to do on Sunday morning. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed in the people and the Lord said, must make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole and so forth. They look on it and they're going to be healed. So that's the text they continue on there. Important to remember in this context that they've made God out to be the serpent. And now suddenly he appears, he's, he's in the camp, he's throughout the camp. He appears in the form that they've accused him of. If you want to see what it looks like for the one who is ever present, filling all things, the treasury of blessings, what it looks like if he were to be the one you're accusing of, look at all of a sudden he appears in throughout the camp. But instead of giving life, death is now dealt to mankind. They're going to do the same thing to Jesus, and that's my point. They're going to accuse him of being the one who is the thief, the murderer, the one who's trying to undermine the people of God. Similarly, he's going to be willingly lifted up in the form that they've made him to be. And until the people come and confess what they've done, they've made him out to be, they cannot be healed. Um, it's beautiful and fascinating that it is in those early days of Christianity that so many of the Pharisees and Jews in Jerusalem converted and they realized what they had done and they themselves became that early Christian community in Jerusalem. Similarly, we looking upon the, the cross of Christ have an opportunity to be healed of the sins in which we've turned our back on the Lord and made him to be the one who is not the giver of our life, but the giver of of death there's a with that background in numbers and there's much to there's much to meditate upon there and then apply it to what jesus is saying but with that background we're going to turn to the the epistle because the epistle is going to do what it what it always does for us and that is applies the gospel text which is why we always in our bible study we turn it around and give it after the gospel because it's the early christian application and it has everything to do with what we've been talking about, about baptism, that baptism plunges us into Christ, as, as, as St. Paul says in Romans 6. And if it plunges us into Christ, then it plunges us into this very mystery that Jesus is talking about in John, about being born anothen or being born from above. And it also plunges us into this whole mystery of Numbers chapter 21, of what they've accused God of being. And of John chapter 3, they've accused Jesus of being. And how God responds to that situation that he finds himself in as their healer and the giver of life. So we're going to see very much as we look at the epistle, all of this now applied to the, to the Christian, specifically applied to the life of St. Paul. So let's take a look at Galatians chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 11. Galatians 
chapter 6, verse 11. Again, I want to encourage you guys to open up your Bibles. Make sure you're actually doing this reading with us. Chapter 6, verse 11 through 18. Brethren, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. All those who want to please in a human way are forcing you to be circumcised merely to avoid persecution because of the cross of Christ. For not even the circumcised observe the law, but they want you to be circumcised that they may boast of your subjection to external rights. But as for me, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creation is of any account. For whoever follows this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and on God's Israel. For now on, let no man give me trouble, for I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus in my body. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Father, give us a context here in the Galatians of what St. Paul's talking about, why he's speaking in this way to these particular people. It's of great interest to me because in a few weeks I'm heading off on pilgrimage to Greece to go in the, the footsteps of St. Paul. And all of my study right now in preparation for that is to understand what he's saying and why he's saying it. It's only there that I'll be able to properly apply, apply it to my spiritual life on my pilgrimage. Go ahead. And so that will be our next eparchial pilgrimage? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you like getting free trips, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so St. Paul, we know, has many journeys, and it's his journeys that will help us understand his epistles. If we understand what, what journey he wrote an epistle on, and then, the, then we know the historical context, and we can make some sense out of it. So the letter to the Galatians is a letter that is often confusing for people today because of how Martin Luther misread the text. All scholars today, including Protestant scholars, all agree that Martin Luther completely misread Galatians. Uh, but putting that aside for, for now. What's going on there? Paul, the, the first major problem Paul faced, the early church faced, was called the Judaizer heresy. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul goes out on his first journey after his baptism in Damascus. He goes to Antioch. From Antioch, he goes on his first journey. And that first journey, he goes to, to Cyprus by, you know, by boat with Barnabas and Mark. They were cousins. They were Cypriots. Then he goes uh, north from there to modern-day Turkey, to Asia Minor, and he goes and he founds the churches of Galatia, and these are the that central region of, of modern-day Turkey. These are uh, uh, the churches that he will visit then on his second journey. When he comes on his second journey, he goes back to Antioch, and then from, his, from Antioch, he goes on another journey, but between the first and second journey is a critical episode called the Council in Jerusalem. When he comes back from that first journey, he comes to Antioch and he tells everybody how wonderful it was, how many the Gentiles were converting to the faith. And, and of course, in Antioch, there are many Gentiles there as well. The majority of the church are Gentiles. But in the absence of Paul, some people have come from Jerusalem, Christians from Jerusalem, and they were teaching in Paul's absence that the church in Antioch, if they really wanted to be real first-class Christians, they needed to be circumcised and keep kosher. 
because that's what all the Christians in Jerusalem were. They were all circumcised and kosher before they were baptized. And, well, okay, you didn't do that before you were baptized, but there's still time here. I know you've been baptized. That's nice, and that's important. But you also need to be circumcised and keep kosher if you really want to be in the covenant. And so this is called the Judaizer heresy, adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, adding to baptism things from the old law, from the Torah. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem and talks to the apostles there. They call a council. This is in Acts 15. And at the council, they say, that's a bunch of nonsense. You don't need to be circumcised and keep kosher. Rather, you have to believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus and the new covenant, not the old covenant. And what's the new covenant? As we know from Paul's epistles, we know from the preaching of Peter and Acts, it was repent, be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we read in Acts, that's through the laying on of hands. And then immediately they're welcomed in the community meal, the Eucharistic meal of which Jesus says, he eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. And I'll raise him on the last day. That's it. So Paul says, wow, okay, great. He gets a letter from the council, from the apostles. There's proof that what he was teaching was authentic apostolic Christianity. He then goes on his second journey. This is in Acts chapter 2. With a purpose, it says, to deliver to the churches of Asia Minor, the Galatian churches, the declaration of the council. And he brings a copy of the letter to prove what he was saying was authentic. So this confirms all these Gentile Christians in their faith. And then he continues on into Macedonia. He founds a church in Corinth. Eventually he comes back to Antioch and he goes on a third journey. And from Antioch, he heads up into Turkey again, just retracing his steps basically of the second journey. He goes to the churches of Galatia, these churches he had founded, these churches that he had, had delivered the declaration of the council against Judaizing. And he goes to Ephesus. And when he's in Ephesus, he writes this letter called the Letter to the Galatians. And this letter is written back to the churches he just visited to correct them in something that really irritated Paul. After all this time spent, after all this work, the churches in Galatia were beginning to be corrupted, infected by the Judaizer heresy. It sounds like what's happened is those false brethren, as Paul calls them, who had traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch and had corrupted the church in Antioch, when they weren't welcomed back in Jerusalem after the council, there was nowhere to go but up into Asia Minor. And so they've now infected Paul's churches in Asia Minor, and Paul is really mad. And so he writes this letter to the Galatians. It's a short little letter. It's very quick, to the point. The Judaizer heresy is a bunch of heresy. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to keep kosher to be saved, you need to be baptized, as Paul says. This is that text where we also hear about Paul confronting Peter even. Peter had gotten, uh, was, was not acting as clearly as he should have regarding this issue in chapter 2. But in chapter 3, a text which is very familiar to all of us because of our baptismal ceremony, we hear that about what Paul says. In chapter 3, verse 27, he says, All of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment, like a new creation, right? We're new, we've been clothed again in the glory of God, like Adam of old, but now the new Adam, clothed in the garments of the new Adam. And, and so this is what's going on in the context here. He's dealing with this issue. This is why the circumcision thing is coming up and mm -hmm. all of that. So Father, understanding this context, which is vitally important for a proper interpretation, 
you know, you were talking about the Ethiopian eunuch earlier and about the conversation that they were having and about how it's obvious that that conversation is all about baptism. Well, here we could say there's another conversation that, that kicks in, or maybe that conversation, which was somewhat hidden before, comes out because St. Paul can now preach clearly what he said to the Ethiopian, and it's right here. It's right here in the text that he gives us in Galatians. As, as soon as he says, look, this, this whole circumcision business isn't going to save you. Your old life isn't going to save you. He immediately begins to, what is going to save you? And then he suddenly begins to talk about, about a couple of things. Uh, crucifixion and being a new creation. This, this is where we're going to find salvation. Interesting, if we apply this, there's so much, like I said earlier, so much for our, our, our people participating to meditate upon in this, in this context as we look back at Numbers and at John. But just, you know, as you were writing, I was thinking about the, the old life versus the new creation and how the Jews in the desert were kind of hungering, as we see in another text for the flesh pots of Egypt. They're looking back. They want to go back to their old life as their source of life as what sustains them. In fact, they were in slavery. Uh, it's easier for us to look back and say, oh yeah, they were in slavery, a horrible life. But look at this, they're hungering for their old life. They're hungering for what was objective slavery, but which now they're in the, in the desert and they're beginning to become you know, almost blinded to how their old life really was. And it's the same with the Pharisees and Nicodemus who refused to be baptized by John. Huh? They want their old life, but Jesus is gonna say no. There's, there's only one way forward. There's only one way to possibly find salvation. And now St. Paul kind of applies this whole business and begins to talk not about the serpent in the desert or, about, or, or specifically about Jesus being crucified. Well, he does mention that. But then suddenly he begins to talk about himself being crucified and becoming a new creation through this circumcision he talks about now he's going to have the marks of our lord jesus Christ in his body and i know you know sometimes western theologians have said maybe this is a, a what's it called they had the stigmata or things like that but but more importantly he's talking about his life in christ and what it looks like and how he's gone through this transformation and you know i just was maybe to, to hand this back to you and, and ask you, in the context of St. Paul's writings, what, how can we understand this concept of him being crucified to the world, the world being crucified to him? It gets a little bit complicated. I mean, I can kind of get it, but what's he talking about? Maybe some of his other letters might help us understand this better. Yeah, so, you know, Galatians is a, a great example of the problem of a Pauline epistle. <clears throat> We're hearing one side of a phone call. Mm -hmm. Paul has founded these churches. He spent months with them, founding them, baptizing. spent all sorts of time with them, catechizing. He formed communities there. He, he laid his hands on, ordained the ministers, the clergy, the bishops, the deacons for those communities. Then he went there again and, and delivered to them the council's declaration. And he spent months with them. Again, preaching and teaching and baptizing, celebrating the divine liturgy with them. Then he goes through there a third time, right? 
These people, there, there is no one that knows Pauline theology better than the Galatian churches at this stage in church history. These guys are the Pauline churches, okay? They are, are fully formed by him. So when he shoots off a quick letter to them, like we'd shoot off an email to someone we know really well, he's, he, we're only hearing half the conversation. We're hearing a few things he wants to talk to them about, yeah. but he's assuming a massive amount of knowledge on their part. So he can say one word here and it assumes volumes on their end that he knows they understand right so uh, this is is a very important to understand how much paul was talking about baptism here and the only way you can really do that is by reading all the pauline epistles and if you read all the pauline epistles really carefully over and over again then you start to pick up on pauline words and themes and ideas and you come to galatians a short little epistle where he's it's, it's just jam-packed with this kind of stuff. You could expand Galatians into 100 chapters if you filled it all out, which is what was going on in the heads of the audience in Galatia when they heard this. So to become a Galatian Christian, we ought to read the rest of the epistles. We don't have time to do that today, obviously, but I'll give you a couple texts that would be helpful, I think, for our audience. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is so important for us. Romans 6 through 8, really, but 6 our baptismal epistle. This is what the church has chosen for us. All apostolic churches, Armenians, Russians, Greeks, whatever you want, the Coptics, the Romans, the Antiochian, every apostolic church reads the epistle to the Romans, chapter six, at a liturgical baptism. Why? Because the early church saw, and at the earliest liturgical reference of baptism and reading of scripture, Romans 6 always comes up. This is the standard. And the reason is because it summarizes the whole thing. So Romans chapter 6, we can just look at that quickly, I think, just a, a summary of it. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, What then shall, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So that means Paul's talking about having died. Christians have died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death, <clears throat> buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that, so that, the purpose of baptism, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he goes on in the rest of the chapter to talk about our new life in Christ, walking in our baptismal grace of the resurrection, awaiting the second coming of Christ when our bodies will be raised from the dead. And then there, this was a great example of how it's, it, it's important, just if we hold our hand there in Romans 6 for a second, we flip back to Galatians. In chapter 2, Paul says, in chapter 2, after condemning the idea of being saved by the Torah, the works of the Torah, the works of the law, circumcision and kosher laws, he condemned that in chapter 2, verse 16. He says in verse 19, his, con his, his uh, answer to the Judaizer heresy is, chapter 2, uh, verse 19, for I, through the Torah died to the Torah. When did he die? This is what he's talking about in Romans 6, having died. And he says that I might live. I, this is verse 20, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So, so for Paul, now we know that when we're reading Paul's epistles and he talks about Paul, have, Paul says, I've died. 
or I've been crucified with Christ, we know he's talking about his baptism. But a lot of times, like something in Galatians here, someone would read Galatians chapter 2 and say, well, he doesn't say baptism anywhere there. Well, that's because he assumes the Galatian Christians know what he's catechized them about. That when Paul says, I've been crucified and you've been crucified, he's reminding them of their baptism. And that's why after chapter 2, in chapter 3, verse 27, he begins to talk about being baptized into Christ. And then this wraps us back to our epistle there. It's it, our reading today in chapter 6. He says, I have been crucified. Right? He says this is verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14. For far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, for by the world, uh, for uh, cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's the exact same language that he said in chapter 2, and it's the exact same language from Romans 6. This is baptism. You know, let's bring all this to, to a conclusion with a quotation from St. John Chrysostom. And this, um, because obviously St. Paul doesn't end with crucifixion. He ends with the resurrection. The purpose of baptism, the purpose of the crucifixion, uh, is to this newness of life that St. Paul talks about in, in, in Romans chapter 6. We've been baptized, we've been buried with him, that we too might walk in a newness of life. And what is that newness of life? Or what does that new creation look like? St. John Chrysostom says, by world, he means not heaven nor earth, but the affairs of life, human praise, distinguished positions, reputation, wealth, and all things that have, have a show of splendor. All such things are dead to me. You know, I just stopped for a second. I was speaking with somebody the other day who said, to me, said that's below me. We we're talking about some things we needed to get done around the church. That's there's there's nothing below a Christian. There's never never anything below a Christian. Um, for Christ was crucified as a as a thief on the cross. Uh, all such things are dead to me. Such should be the case for all Christians. Nor is he satisfied only with the former ordinary mode of dying, but he also introduces another kind of death, dying to the world itself. And this is really the challenge that the church places before us today as we prepare ourselves for the Feast of the Holy Cross. We can no longer stand on the outside of our faith. We can't stand on the edge of the Jordan River like the Pharisees did and watch Christ be crucified. We cannot merely fulfill an obligation by going to church. We, can't, we can no longer sustain ourselves in our former life or hunger for those things which we previously had, because we've, we've come to know that those things are slavery. And so I challenge you, I challenge our participants, in what way is your life different as a Christian than before you were a Christian? If you say I was baptized as a baby, fine, that's wonderful. It's good that we're baptized as babies. But, but, but when you began to be serious about your faith, when you made it your own and become adult in the faith, how is your life different from the guy next to you who's not a Christian? And if it's not fundamentally different, then I would ask, where is your newness of life? Where is your newness of life? Our life as a Christian is a life of setting aside the prerogatives and priorities of the world to make Christ and Christ crucified our only priority, that we might walk in the newness of life, of his life, of his way of giving, of his way of love, of forgiveness, of patience, of care. That this new life, which is God's life, may become our life 
and his life is eternal life. And he, and he alone has destroyed death. And if death no longer has dominion over him, then we who have been baptized into him and are walking in this newness of life, death no longer has dominion over us. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.